All right, we are in Romans chapter 8, and uh, we uh, last week we did uh, verses 29 and 30, uh, and the week before we did verses 28 and the first part of verse 29. So, uh, very familiar verses, uh, as are the verses that we're going to... Uh, look at today. I'd like to pick it up today in 31 and uh, we'll see how far we get. Maybe get down through about verse 34 today. So, uh, let's pick it up and read in uh, verse 28 and read down. Uh, well, let's just read the whole context all the way down through verse 39 uh, as Paul is wrapping up this whole section of Romans from chapter 1 through chapter 8. Uh, chapter 9 really does follow on the heels of chapter 8. It, it, it uh, is following Paul's logic, uh, uh, following the things that he said, but it really is a major shift in, uh, in direction. So, he's really kind of wrapping up this first major portion of the letter here in, in the last verses of chapter 8. So, he says in verse 28, he says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, going back over particularly last, uh, particularly last week but also the last couple weeks in verses 28 through 30, what are some of the things we've talked about that you remember uh, particularly that you'd like to recall at this point?
them. Everybody speak at once here. Some people overlook part of one of all things are good, all things work together. Okay, okay. All right. We talked about the fact that he's, that he's not saying that everything that happens is good. He's saying that everything that happens, God orchestrates it in such a way that ultimately uh, good results from it. So we don't, we don't live under this illusion that everything is good. Uh, but we do understand that everything that happens in our life, God is somehow orchestrating, providentially working so that he can accomplish good in our life as a result. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that would be good. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? Oh, God being transcendent. Yes, we talked about the transcendence of God and the. Reason this come up is because it came up is because we were talking about God's foreknowledge, and what does that mean? God's foreknowledge, and uh, one of the things we have to understand about God is that He is transcendent. That is, He is above and beyond His creation. He's over His creation, which means that He is above. He's in one sense He's outside of space and time. Okay, so when we speak of God's foreknowledge. We are speaking from a human perspective, not from a divine perspective. God does not learn anything. God does not discover anything. There's not a process with God. He uh, he exists outside of time. And so that's obviously because we are created as time creatures. This is very, very difficult for us to get our handle on, get a handle on and comprehend. But because God exists out of time, he knows everything as though using a time reference here, he knows everything as though it were right now, okay? Because to God, everything is, just is. It is now, okay? So, when we speak of God's foreknowledge, what we're saying is that before things happen in our experience, God knows those things because he exists outside of time, okay? So, this whole idea of God's transcendence and being above His creation is very important in understanding the idea of foreknowledge. What else? Okay. Intimate, intimate relationship. Can't read your own notes, can you? <laughs> You'd make a great doctor. <laughs> so, yes, we talked about the fact that there are kind of two primary definitions that are offered for the word foreknowledge. What, what it means. And the, and the primary definition, yes, the primary definition, one, the one that's always listed first in the lexicons or whatever, is the idea of prescience or to know before. Okay? And uh, very simply, it means to know before. It means to know something before, to know something about something before. So when the word is used, for example, 
in uh, in Acts, uh, I think it's in Acts 26, Paul uses the word and he speaks about the Jews having foreknowledge and he uses that word, the Greek word that is translated foreknowledge. He uses that word to refer to the knowledge that the Jews had about him before the time in which he's speaking there in Acts 26. So he's here he is, he's standing before Agrippa, he's speaking before Agrippa, and he says, the Jews have a foreknowledge of me. They know something about me. They knew something about me before these events. And he describes what they were. So the idea is simply the idea of prescience or knowledge before something happens about something. So it has to do, when it's used in reference to a person like with Paul in Acts 26, it means the Jews knew something about Paul before the time in which he is speaking. Okay, So it's just simply the idea, the straightforward idea of prescience. And we pointed out that in, in all cases in which the word is used, that particular, those two, actually there's two words, there's the noun uh, to uh, foreknowledge and there is the verb to foreknow, Okay, uh, uh, both those words, related word. In every case where they are used, those two words are used in any classical Greek literature outside of Scripture. It always has that simple, straightforward meaning of to know something about. Okay. Uh, furthermore, in every case, in the few cases where it is used in the Greek apocryphal Old Testament books. The, the Old Testament apocryphal books uh, that were written originally in Greek, the places where the word is, those words are used, it has that idea of prescience or to know beforehand. And also, it's used, those words are used six times in the New Testament and in two out of the six times that it's used in the New Testament, it's very clear that it means it has that simple, straightforward meaning of to know something about or to know something beforehand about someone or something. Okay. So there are only four cases in, of, of all our exposure to the Greek language. There are only four cases in which it's, even, it's, it's suggested that it might have a different meaning. And when, when it is suggested that it has a different meaning, other than simple foreknowledge, it has one of these three, and 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 commentators and and scholars aren't in agreement even in those four which of those three it means. So some suggest it means to uh, predestine or to choose beforehand, and uh, uh, some suggest it has the idea of this intimate knowledge, and they go back into the Old Testament into a place into a couple of places in the Old Testament where a Hebrew word, uh, a particular Greek word, which is similar to but not related to the words we're talking about, is used to translate a Hebrew word. It gets, kind of, it gets to be quite an involved uh, discussion, actually. <clears throat> but uh, the idea is the idea of, of to know intimately or to have an intimate knowledge. So, to summarize as simply as I can, in all the cases in Greek literature, both extra-biblical and biblical, in all cases, except for four, it's clear it means prescience, to know something about something beforehand. In the other four cases, one of them is the passage that we have before us here in Romans chapter 8. It is suggested by some many commentators that it should be translated either uh, to know intimately, to 
uh, uh, to choose uh, or to predestine. Okay, but they can't agree as to which of those three. Now, as we mentioned last week, the definition of a word is not determined by its entomology. It's determined. It's not determined by uh, the structure of the word or that sort of thing, but it's determined by the context. It's determined by how the word is used in its context. That's how we decide what a word means. So if, if uh, you see a word appear uh, in, in text or in speech or whatever, you go, okay, I know the word means this because of the context it's in. If I were to say uh, to you that Gary over here is green, that could mean one of several things. Uh, I suggested that he could, given the quality of his handwriting, he could be a doctor. Okay. Well, if he's a doctor, he's a pretty green doctor. Okay. What does that mean? He's inexperienced, right? Okay. On the other hand, it could mean simply that he's wearing a green shirt, which Thankfully, he happened to wear today, so I could use this as an illustration. I called him ahead of time and asked if he'd wear a green shirt. Uh, Four dollars. <laughs> that's what it was. So, so we determine the meaning of a word by its context, how it's used in context. And so some suggest that in this context, the word here, foreknowledge, has the idea of either to choose, to predestine, or to, uh, uh, to have an intimate uh, knowledge of or an intimate relationship with, okay? Uh, those are the alternatives. And as I told you, I don't see any reason to take anything other than the straightforward idea of prescience in this passage. I don't see any reason in the context to take anything other than the way the word is typically used in, all, in almost all other cases in the Greek language in classical Greek literature. So, so to me, what I understand Paul is saying there is, is that God foreknew, that is, that he knew beforehand, that is, before our experience of salvation, God knew something about us. And of course, as we understand, as he, gets, he begins to talk about the subject of justification here in this passage uh, we understand from the things that Paul has emphatically stated earlier in Romans that justification is by faith. So my conclusion is, and the conclusion of many is, that what God is saying here, or excuse me, what Paul is saying here, well, God is saying here, is that, is that his foreknowledge is a reference to God's knowledge that we would believe. Okay? The other possible alternative, the other possible interpretation is either that God... God's foreknowledge means his election or his choice of us or his predestination of us or that it is his intimate knowledge of us before we were saved. In other words, that he already had this intimate love relationship with us and from that intimate love relationship he then, uh, he then uh, so directed that we would be saved. Of course, the second uh, view of the passage which I just laid out for you is typically what's considered to be the Calvinist view of the passage uh, and, the, and the view that I hold, as I've explained already, uh, is one that is, uh, is not Calvinist. It uh, doesn't hold to a Calvinist view of this particular passage. Uh, but the point that I really wanted to make last week, and I wanted to explain that idea of foreknowledge because we all wrestle with that. That's a big question for us. But the point I really wanted to make is whether you hold 
a non-Calvinist view of the passage, as I do, and believe that the foreknowledge here is a reference to God's knowledge of our faith, and that given God's knowledge of our faith, He has then predestined us, called us, justified us, and glorified us. Whether you view it that way, or whether you view it from a Calvinist point of view, uh, that, that God had this intimate relationship with us from eternity past, and out of that intimate relationship, He so directed that irresistibly uh, we would be saved, that there was no way that we could resist that, that God just uh, elected us and saved us and, and regenerated us and He caused us to have faith, etc., etc., etc. If that is the view, either view you take, we still get to Paul's point. And that's what I wanted to make. That's the point I wanted to make. Whichever position you take in reference to foreknowledge, you still get to the same point that Paul wants to make. And the point that Paul wants to make is that those whom God foreknows are ultimately finally glorified. That those who God foreknows ultimately all be, are uh, experienced, trying to figure out how to word this, experience the purpose for which God saved us. Okay? So I don't care if you're a Calvinist or a non Calvinist, if you're a believer, if you've trusted Christ, whether or not you think you had some choice in that matter, or whether you think you were just ir, uh, irresistibly predestined for it, the one thing we know is that now that you are a believer, you are called justified and glorified, that you are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Now, what I've done here is I've managed to take all the things we talked about last week that I was asking you to tell me and I've just done it all. I've done all your work for you. Does anybody have anything else you want to say about that we talked about last week? Uh, no, great, good. Mr. Green Gary over here. <laughs> green jeans, a green shirt in this case. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was his relationship with us and knowing everybody that made him say that. And the fact that he, he's there to restore us to the rightful image of God. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. This is our destiny, folks. If we're believers, our destiny is that finally we're going to get to bear that full image of God that we were originally intended to bear. He created us in His image. That's the way He wanted us. We messed it all up. As we said, it has not been erased, but it has been effaced. That's the way we like to say it. It has been affected. It's been diminished, but it's still there. But the promise is for those who believe that they are predestined that once again that image of God as it is incarnated in Christ, the image of Christ will once again be reflected in us. We will bear His image. And because we bear His image, He calls us His what? Okay, His sons. Uh, God's sons, but Christ's... 
brothers. Yeah, and that's what he says. He, he is going to be the firstborn among many brethren. And so we have this vision that God has this purpose that he's working in the hearts and lives of all believers to ultimately create this vast population of men and women who are Christ's brothers in which he, Christ, is the preeminent. He is the firstborn, he says. He is the preeminent. He is the one who is the standard to which we all are, of which we all are the image. In other words, we are not going to be gods. We're not going to be Christ. We are simply the image. We are the reflection of this one who is preeminent. And he's going to populate the new heavens and the new earth with millions of people who are Christ's brothers. And if you're a believer in Christ, that is your destiny which was established and set before the foundation of the world. And that's his point. Because what Paul wants us to know, and we see this as we go on through the verses that follow, what Paul wants us to know is that we are absolutely secure and safe in God's love. And that's where he's going with this. So, well, let's pick it up. We could review last week's lesson all day today. But let's pick it up. And Paul says in verse 31, and I want to look at uh, the next three or four verses as the Lord gives us time today. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Well, uh, what we notice in these verses is Paul just hits us with this series of rhetorical questions, okay? He just kind of bam, 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 bam. So he's, uh, so what shall we say to these things? If, uh, if God is for us, who is against us? Uh, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Uh, who is the one who can have just one right after another of these rhetorical questions? And you'll notice he doesn't really answer any of them. They are rhetorical questions. In other words, they are questions that are given for a rhetorical purpose. They answer themselves. In the question that's asked, the answer is implied. Okay? And, and that, is the, that is the nature of the passage that's before us. So he's hitting us with all these questions. Uh, and, and his purpose is that we would see in his questions... The, the, the answer to the very question itself. And so that's the format that we have. But the issue that's really at stake in Paul's mind and Paul's heart at this point is your and my security as believers in Jesus Christ. Are we or are we not secure? Are we secure in the face of external circumstances? We've been through a lot here in central Oklahoma this week. Who would have known last Sunday morning when we were sitting here in the classroom what we would experience as a people uh, over the last uh, seven days? Uh, Sunday was, uh, of course, a very interesting day in and of itself. Uh, <clears throat> the tornado that ultimately formed and went through Little Axe and stuff actually went 
before it dropped the storm before it dropped tornado went right over my house you know and I'm watching this <laughs> you know this cold this, uh, supercell go right over my home and then it dropped its tornado back uh, about two or three miles east of us and went on and did all the damage that it did but <clears throat> but but that's just one example of the circumstances the things we've seen uh, even on the scale that we've seen in more and in other places in the last week uh, is just uh, is just a sampling of the circumstances that we face and Paul's question is are we secure in Christ in the face of circumstances? But he also asks the question whether or not we are secure in the face of opposition. Because we face all kinds of opposition in this life. We face overt persecution. We face overt resistance uh, from others. Uh, people who may be opposed to our faith or to our values or to our standards or people who may just be opposed to us. We have people who just don't like us sometimes and, and they fight us or resist us. Maybe not because they are particularly opposed to our Christianity, but just because they have their own agenda and we seem to stand in the way of their agenda for whatever reason. And uh, so we have people who oppose us I remember um, a number of years ago, many years ago, obviously, now I was a young person at, at a Bible training camp situation, and I was there for uh, several weeks, uh, and uh, I was in my mid-teens probably, I guess, and, and I remember there were just a, you know, was a bunch of guys and a bunch of gals there, and we were going through all this kind of rigorous spiritual training, and we were having to do some uh, manual work along the side and that sort of thing, but there was... Just one other young man at this camp, he was probably a little older than me, I think I was probably about 13 or 14 at the time, but there was a young man there who for some reason just took a disliking to me. He just didn't like me, you know. And so as the weeks went on, this began to wear on me, you know. There's just a guy there who didn't like me and at every point or every turn, I guess it was a personality clash, I don't know what it was, but at every point or turn, this guy was you know, against me. He was resisting me. And I remember going at one point to one of the spiritual leaders and uh, one of the guys that was directing the camp and saying, what do I do about this guy? How do I relate to him? You know, Well, we all have people like that in our lives, don't we? For whatever reason, they've just taken a disliking to us and they oppose us and they resist us. What is your security in Christ in view of the people who resist you and oppose you and are against you? And then, even perhaps the most troubling of all, what is our security in Christ? Not only in face of the circumstances and in face of opposition, but what is our security in Christ in, face, in the face of our own human, fallen human nature and our own sin? And Paul addresses all three of these questions in these few verses that lay before us and up until the end of the chapter. This is what he's talking about. And so he begins in verse 31 and he says, what shall we say to these things? Well, this is a, we're familiar with Paul's approach here by this point. He's said this before several times already in Romans. He has put forth a given argument or a, a given, uh, he's, he's lifted for us uh, some truths or set forth some truths. And then after he set forth these truths, then he stops and he pauses and he says, what shall we say to these things? You know, 
If these things are true, shall we sin more that grace may abound? That's one example, okay? And so he does this from time to time. He gets kind of to the end of one series of things that he's asserting is true, and then he asks the question, well, what do we say about this? And in most cases, what he's trying to do is he's trying to, uh, most other cases in Romans, when he does that, he's trying to steer us away from wrong conclusions, like the example I just used. He talked about how... Uh, how uh, grace abounds when we sin. And so he says, what shall we say? Shall we sin more that grace may abound? And he says, God forbid. He's trying to steer us away from the wrong conclusion from the things he's just said. Now he uses this same form again in verse 31. He says, what shall we say to these things? But instead of trying to steer us away from some wrong conclusion... What he's trying to do here is to steer us to the right conclusion. Okay, Given the things that he has just been laying before us, what then can we know is true? What can we conclude from this? Okay. Well, what are the things which he's just said? What are the points which Paul has just made that become the basis of the things he's going to tell us in verse 31 and following? And that's a question. Needs an answer. Pardon? Okay, where do you see that? In the verses. In the verses before 31. Yeah. Yeah. Already been done. All past tense. All this stuff is past tense. So even the glory that earlier in the chapter he talked about is yet going to happen. The whole creation is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the glory of the sons of God. Okay. So, so early in the chapter he says it's going to happen. It's still in the future for us experientially. But as far as God is concerned, our glorification is already done. It's already secure. Not only that, we have been predestined. What have we been predestined to? What it, pardon? To be conformed to the image of Christ in order that what? In order that Christ might be what? Firstborn among many brethren. So we have been predestined. We have been called. We have been justified. Remember, we've talked a lot about justification. What is that? That's God's judicial decree that we who were sinners have now been by the decree of God decreed to be righteous. We have been justified. We have been glorified. That glory which I have not yet experienced is already a settled matter in the heart and mind of God. It's a done deal. It's, as I said a couple of weeks ago, set in concrete. Okay? These are all things that are done. 
Not only that, we know that all things work together. He says in verse 28, for those who love God and who are called according to a purpose. So whatever happens in my life, however terrible my circumstances may be, however great the opposition I may encounter, however much I myself fail, I know that all things are working together for my good. God's just doing that. Okay. These are the things about which Paul refers when he says, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to this, that, that all things work together for good? What shall we say to this, that the Holy Spirit is making intercession for me according to the will of God? What shall we say to this, that I have been foreknown by God? What shall we say to this, that I have been predestined by God to be conformed into the image of His Son in order that I might be among His brethren. What are we to say to this that I have been called by God to salvation? What, is the, what are we to say to this that I have been justified by God? I've been rendered. I've been declared righteous. What are we to say to this that I have been glorified? Well, this is what we say. God is forth. God is forth. That's what he says. Verse 31, what are we to say of these things? If God is for us, it's if there is not a conditional kind of maybe what if, but it's, it's the idea of since. Since God is for us. That's the idea he's communicating there. So what these things that he's already been talking about in verses 28 through 30 particularly, but even other things he said before that, what these things tell us is God is for you. God is for you. God favors you. How can all these things be true and God not be for us? Obviously, He's for me. And if you're a child of God, and He is talking here about children of God, He's made that very clear. He's talking about those who are justified, those who have by faith trusted Christ. Those are the people He's talking about. But He says God is for them. Now, God isn't for everybody. Scriptures are quite clear. The book of Ezekiel, over and over again, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel talks about the people God is against. He talks about him being against the Egyptians and he talks about him being against Tyre and he talks about him being against Sidon and he talks about God being, uh, being against even Israel and he talks about God being against the shepherds, the false shepherds of Israel and the false prophets and the false priests of Israel. Over and over and over again throughout the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel talks about those whom God is against. And I ask myself, well, how does God decide whom is He against? And whom is he for? How do we know whom God is against and whom he's for? In James, James, quoting the Old Testament, says that God is opposed to whom? The proud. But he what? Gives grace to the humble. So we discover that God is opposed to the proud. He's against the proud. And He gives grace to the humble. Now when James uses that, and Peter also quotes the same passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, he quotes it. And, and, and in both cases, James and Peter are using it to exhort believers to walk in humility with one another. 
James in our, all of our relationships with others and Peter particularly in our relationship to spiritual leadership. And he talks about how we should walk in humility because God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So that principle applies to believers that there is an extent to which God could be opposed to a believer if he's being proud in one respect or another. But in an ultimate sense, the world is divided into two groups of people, those whom God is against and those whom God is for. And those whom God is against are the proud, and those whom God is for are the humble. And the ultimate dividing line is the man's man or woman's response to the gospel of Christ. And we have a classic example of that in Luke chapter 14. When Jesus tells the parable of the two men who come into the temple to pray. Remember that story? The two men come into the temple to pray and one is what? The first one is what? He's a Pharisee, yes. The Pharisee comes into the temple and he says, God, I thank you I am not like other men. I'm not a swindler. I'm not an adulterer. I don't do all these things and I tithe regularly and I do all this good stuff and I thank you I'm not like other people and I particularly thank you I'm not like this guy over here who's also praying. Well, this guy over here who also praying happens to be what? Excuse me? He's a publican. He's a tax collector. Okay? So he is a tax collector. And to the Jews, you know, this is kind of the the, the scum at the bottom of the barrel, okay? So this guy is a tax collector. And he's praying. <laughs> What'd you say? Still are, you said. Huh? Is that what you said? <laughs> uh, but he's over here and he's praying. And what is he saying? What is this, what is this tax collector saying? First of, first of all, let me ask, what is his posture? What does it say about his posture? says he can't even lift his eyes up to heaven. So his, his eye, he can't even look up to heaven. Okay, He's too ashamed to look to heaven. But what does he say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay, so here we have in Luke chapter 14, we have the classic example of those whom God is against and those whom God is for. The proud, the man who says, I'll do it on my own. I'll get to heaven on my own. I can be good enough to keep God happy. And the other man who is so humiliated by his sin, so ashamed of his sin that he will not lift his eyes to heaven and he pleads out and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And his only plea is the mercy of God. And he's asking God to intercede for him. That word mercy there also carries the sense of propitiation. God, make a propitiation for me. God, make a sacrifice for me. Because I am a sinner. And Jesus says of these two men, he says, this tax collector, he says, he went out what? Excuse me? Justified. He went out justified rather than the other. 
So one man goes out justified. He falls into the category of the people of whom Paul is speaking in Romans chapter 8. He is a justified man. He was foreknown. He was predestined. He was called. He was justified. And he was glorified. And in opposition to him, we have the Pharisee who says, I'm good enough. I've got it together. I don't need God's forgiveness. I don't need the atonement. Okay? This is the ultimate. This is the ultimate dividing line of these two categories of men and women in the world. And God says concerning these over here, the justified, the called, the predestined, the foreknown, God says of them that He is for them. He is for them. And He is against those who would walk in their own pride and attain and, 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 and seek to stand before God by their own righteousness, by their own good deeds. So this is the dividing line. And Paul says of those who are over here, and he says us, he, says, he, he talks to the Romans and he says us. So he, and he's classifying himself with the Romans and he's putting the Romans, the, Ro, the Roman believers there in, in the city of Rome and himself, he's putting them in, in this category of people that God is for. Remember who we're talking about here, folks. We're talking about this transcendent God. We're talking about this... You know, <laughs> he's not one of these little idols you set on a shelf. You know, He is the transcendent God who stands outside of space and time, who knows all things, who never learns anything new. He knows all things. He's never surprised by anything. This God, who is sovereign, and who is providential is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And so I read that and I go, oh, okay, so I don't have anybody against me. Is that what he says? We're shaking our heads, aren't we? Because we all know we got people against us, right? <laughs> so what does Paul mean? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, we we all have adversaries. We all have opponents. We all have things that stand and people who stand against us. Very obviously, to most of us, we just... You know, we've already talked about this a little bit today. We have people in the world who oppose us. They resist us. And, and like I said, sometimes it may just be because we stand in the way of their agenda or whatever. Uh, and, and so they just they fight us. They resist us. Sometimes, though, it's because they hate what we stand for. They hate the values that we hold to because we love God and we love the truth of God and we love the ways of God. And, and, we, and we advance those, we promote those, we want those, and we want those not only in our own lives, but we want them in the lives of the people around them, and we want them in our culture and in our society. And so we desire those. And we have people out there who don't want that. They want something else. They don't want God's standard. They don't want God's values. And so they resist us, and they fight us, and they oppose us. And whether it's in the area of of abortion or homosexuality or, or family or raising children 
or whatever it is in whatever area they fight us and they resist us so what does Paul mean when he says if God is for us who can be against us well the question is not really whether or not we have ones who oppose us and fight us and resist us the question is will they win and that's Paul's point Paul's point is okay you got all these people out here and they're fighting you and they're resisting you but ultimately they're fighting against God who is for you and uh, and I came across a really neat quote by uh, a, a guy by the name of uh, uh, John uh, uh, Chrysostom. Uh, he was a, a fourth century uh, Christian, uh, one of the fathers of the early church. And speaking about this passage, uh, Chrysostom said, Yet those that be against us, so far are they from thwarting us at all, that even without their will, they become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings. Why does he say that? He says, well, here they are. And there's more to the quote. I'll get to it in a minute. But he's saying they're, they're out there and they're resisting us. They're fighting us. But he says, even against their will, they are becoming for us the causes of crowns and the procurers of countless blessings. Why does he say that? He says that because of Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those who love God. Who are the called according to his purpose. And we now know, as we follow those verses down, what is the purpose? The purpose is that we be conformed to the image of God and join this vast host of brothers of Christ. This is God's purpose. He is working in our lives. And those who oppose us and resist us, whatever they do, God is turning everything they do to that purpose. And so he goes on and he says, uh, he says, they become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings in that God's wisdom turneth their plots unto our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us. And I think as I was reading that quote today this week and I was thinking about that. and I was thinking how oftentimes I get so uptight when people resist me. Don't you? Yeah, you, you just get aggravated. You get mad at them, you know, and you want to wring their neck, you know, and say, get out of my way. You know, don't you realize I'm a child of God and I'm doing God's work? Get out of my way. You know, that's, that's how we're at. Right? Well, I'm not suggesting this is what we all ought to do actually overtly, but we might think this in our hearts is to just simply say to them. Thank you. Because you are procuring for me a greater crown. Because you are procuring for me blessings I would not otherwise be able to have if it were not for your resistance and opposition. Now, I don't suggest you always say that to them. That might provoke more, <laughs> more animosity. But, you, but, but wouldn't it change our perspective? I was just thinking about how many times in my life I get frustrated because things don't work out the way I want them to work out. And it's big things. You know, it's really big things. 
And it's even little things, like when I'm at work and I can't find a tool I'm looking for and I'm getting mad because I, where did I put that tool? You know, and I get mad and I'm frustrated because I can't get my work done because I left that stupid putty knife on the other side of the house and I can't figure out where I put it. You know, it's stupid stuff like that. And what if I change my perspective and I looked at things this way? And I realized that all things work together for good to loves that love God. You are called according to His purpose. And that if God is for me, nobody can really ever really be against me because whatever they do, God turns for my good. He that did not spare His own Son... Will He not also with Him freely give us all things? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, will He not also with Him freely give us all things? I was trying to visualize this because we've read this verse so many times. This slides right on by us, doesn't it? And so I'm trying to visualize this. I'm trying to get, you know, God, help me to, help me to feel this verse. So put yourself in your mind's eye, in your imagination for a moment. Put yourself in front of Pilate. You're in front of Pilate. Not Christ, but you. You're in front of Pilate. And you are being tried. And out there is the mob. And they are crying for your crucifixion. There's the world. There's all your enemies. There's, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the neighbor down the street that lets his dog run, and you know, and and he bites at your heels, and you know, and and there's the people at work who stand in your way and obstruct you, and there are the people who, and and then there's the people who really hate you because you are a Christian, because you name the name of Christ, and and there are all these people, and they're screaming for Pilate. To crucify you. And the circumstances. The circumstances are out there and they are screaming. But even more than the circumstances and the people, there's the demonic realm and it's out there too. Satan himself and all of his hosts are out there and they're screaming and they're saying, this person is a guilty sinner and he ought to be killed. But even more terrifying than all of those is your own conscience, right? Because your own conscience is agreeing with them. Your own conscience is saying, yes, I'm a sinner and I ought to be judged. And so I'm facing this Inevitable result, this inevitable judgment, this inevitable condemnation. And I can feel my feet sliding into the pits of hell. And all of a sudden, God shows up. And He grabs me and He pulls me out of the way and instead He places His Son in that place. His dearly beloved Son. 
there is no greater love than the love within the Trinity. And this great God has delivered up, he says, he delivered up his Son for us and took us out of that place. Another quote by a guy from the 19th century, Octavius Winslow, he said, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. So he has delivered up his son. The most precious thing that God the Father has is his own son, right? The most precious possession. How precious? Infinitely precious. And he has delivered his own son up in my place. And in your place. Is God for you? Is God for you? And if he is for you, who can be against you? But if he has delivered his own son up, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? Do I think God's holding out on me? Do you think God's holding out on you? I sometimes think God's holding out on me. Just to be honest with you. There are times when I'm not getting what I want and I'm thinking, God, why are you holding out on me? What's going on here? But God doesn't hold out on me. How do I know? Because everything else God can give to me is trivial compared to what He has already given. Everything else God can give to me is in one sense a trinket compared to what He has already given. You see, with God, it's not a question of pouring good money after bad. See, that's how I think, right? I kind of think, okay, you know, there are some things, you know, you got an old car and you put so much money in it to keep it running and eventually you get to, okay, i got to quit pouring good money after bad, okay? So we just stop and we let the car go to pieces and we finally, you know, sell it to the junk dealer, right? Okay? But that's not God's attitude towards us. With God, He has already poured all the good money in. There's no good money left. And so I know that God's purpose for me will be fulfilled. And so then he says, who is the one? Uh, so he says uh, in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So his statement about his, in the previous verse about his son is leading us irrevocably to the next step in his logic. First, what he has tried to argue for us is that there is no, no person, either in this world or in the demonic realm, 
that can successfully oppose us because God is for us. So there's no person out there. But that still leaves a big, nagging question. What about me? What about my sin? I keep stumbling. I keep sinning. I keep failing God. Is it possible, God, that even though no one out there could ever possibly separate me from your love, no one out there could ever possibly keep me from fulfilling your purposes, is it possible, God, that my own sin might do that? You want the answer to that question? Come back next week because I'm out of time.